from Green Biz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Lauren Hepler here in Berkeley, California. On this week's edition, we go inside Kashi's quest to grow the number of organic farms, hear how the city of Phoenix is looking to buck its reputation as the world's least sustainable city, and look at the forces disrupting the role of chief sustainability officers. We're shaking things up this week on Green Biz 350. It's Friday, February 23rd, and I'm Green Biz senior writer Lauren Hepler here in finally sunny Berkeley, California. Our executive editor, Joel McCower, is out this week, so I'm joined by our all-star East Coast reporter and editor extraordinaire, Heather Clancy. How's it going, Heather? <laughs> Great in cloudy northern New Jersey. Uh, can't where it win is, them all. <laughs> where there's no more snow. <laughs> well, I hear we get, we're getting about four days off this week before the next big winter storm rainstorm Mm -hmm. hits so we'll Mm -hmm. see hopefully all the dams hold and all of that talk about infrastructure gosh yep um Mm. perfect well how are you doing i know you guys had a busy week last week in arizona i am still assessing and digesting all the information i love green biz 17 i love the show um and it's it's very overwhelming though i I don't know how the 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 attendees do it Go home and assimilate all that knowledge. (laughs) Yeah, really. Well, we've got some really interesting loose ends to tie up from the event last week, some news stories. So let's jump right into it with the Week in Review. So one of the rather intriguing pieces to come out of our Green Biz 17 conference last week in Phoenix, Arizona, was written by our reporter Keith Larson that carried the headline, Behind the Forces Disrupting the CSO's Role. So Keith looked at sort of the thought that as the business world changes due to new technologies and automation, obviously that has big implications for the field of corporate sustainability. Um, We had folks like BSR CEO Aaron Kramer talking about some of these things, saying that very few companies are really thinking about how the role of the CSO is going to change, um, which may sort of come into play sooner than later. Yep. I, 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 as a data geek, I loved that theme in, in, um, the comments that were made last, last week at the the conference. Um, and it's it just one of those, those things about, you know, as, as that, as the information becomes more transparent, the CSO has to, to push the ball forward. I mean, I, I guess it's really, it's just really all about continuing to innovate, right. And not getting too complacent. And I, I believe, that it was a nice wake up call for those that were there. And you can use this information to automate certain parts of your jobs and, um, and then think, think a little bit more out of the box. Yeah, you would think maybe help out with some of that survey fatigue that we hear about all the time. But <laughs> yes. um, let's get a quick snippet from Aaron Kramer at BSR. So let me talk a bit now about new approaches. Um, And I'd say it's time to disrupt sustainability management the same way uh, business in general is being disrupted. Um, You know, a lot of companies have great 2025 sustainability goals. We heard very few companies, very few people are thinking about how the role of the chief sustainability officer is going to change over that period of time. And I think to do that, you've got to come back to 
um, some core competencies that I think everyone in this audience has and, is a, and, and these are things that are going to be of growing importance over the next several years. So what are those things? Well, at their best, CSOs are futurists, they're connectors, they're innovators, revenue generators, we heard Michael Kabori talk about that from Levi's yesterday, um, and yes, also advocates, which we'll talk about uh, in a little bit. So how are those competencies going to play out over the next several years? Heather, you also wrote a great piece out of the event that I thought was really interesting, looking at why more NGOs are seeking corporate allies. Can you tell us a little bit about sort of the players in this space and what you were looking at? Yeah, so it's been pretty acknowledged for that that the you know there's always been sort of a healthy tension, or maybe not always healthy, between the corporate world and and the NGO, the nonprofit community. Um, Greenpeace, for example, still doesn't take cor corporate money. However, that mean doesn't mean that it's not willing to collaborate. And and in in particular, I th what was really striking to me at the event was the the call for vocal collaboration, if you will, like get, let's get our stories straight. Let's talk, let's talk together. Let's advocate together for a sustainable future. And uh, here are some comments from Michael Brune, the executive director of the Sierra Club. Sure. Well, the way that we view the business community is what I said at the beginning, which is uh, critical agents in driving positive change on a range of environmental or civil rights or human rights issues. Um, most of the time, the way that we engage with uh, the business community is specifically towards driving towards solutions. So when we're working to uh, not uh, support a, a, a gas plant from being built and we're advocating for a range of clean energy solutions, most of the time the reason why we win is because we're partnering with the local business community who are saying that a combination of energy efficiency technologies and solar and wind and energy storage uh, will be a better solution for consumers. So we'll have large energy consumers who are working with us or companies in the clean tech space who are working with us. Um, other times, the way that we're engaging with the business community is through social media or online action or um, grassroots pressure where we're looking to push a company or push an industry to go farther. Um, and so to get real, uh, our approach in that is that we, we, we're not trying to criticize a company because we're against corporate power or we're against the existence of that company or that industry. If it's your company or in your industry, we're trying to find ways to solve problems. Our, our guiding belief is that most people, most companies, most institutions want to be a part of driving positive change. And our guiding belief is that people will uh, respond to criticism. I know that I'm doing my job well when if someone is criticizing me, I listen. I look for the truth in that criticism. I identify what I can be done to address that criticism. And then I make changes. And so that's our approach to dealing with companies, uh, regardless of what industry they're in, is to say, here's, here's what the world needs. Here's what the ecological imperative is. We see an opportunity for your company to do more. Uh, and here's some uh, feedback from your customers or your investors or the general public to get there. And then we try to find a reasonable way, a reasonable timeline to meet those goals. And we try to listen to what companies are saying so that uh, we're coming up at a mutually agree coming up to a mutually agreeable solution. 
really interesting to hear, especially given that sort of over time, there are these well-documented legacies, as you mentioned, of sort of construction collaboration, like McDonald's and Mm -hmm. Greenpeace, sort of tangled over deforestation in the Amazon, but also obviously some some much more adversarial relationships. Um, I've written more recently about Greenbiz sort of going after big IT firms. I'm sure that's something you've seen, Heather, with sort of the footprint of data centers. Um, So interesting to see just sort of how this landscape shifts over time for which NGOs, which hot topics, and which companies are involved. Right. No, I did speak with some some big corporates sort of off the record at the show and they you know while none of them are going to stand up and well maybe some of them will stand up and say they love Greenpeace but they all acknowledge that the data that these nonprofits are collecting uh, all these great information is very helpful and useful to them they, they sometimes have information from the field that that the corporates can't get themselves so I think you will see much more constructive collaboration um, continuing and because hey you know what there's kind of a common enemy right now. So they need to get their act together and their voices together. Right. Well, that's definitely an evolving space. And another sort of sector that's just really getting off the ground is this whole concept of the circular economy. So sort of taking these ideas we've had for a long time now around closed loop systems, recycling, and amping that up a bit to talk about keeping materials cycling back through supply chains and sort of radically reducing waste in the economy. Our associate editor, Anya Hollemeiser, took a look at all of this in her piece, GM and Steelcase See a Web of Opportunity in the Circular Economy. So we've talked about this issue a little bit in terms of small-scale examples of companies trying out pilot projects. I've written about Ford using uh, spent agave plants that are used for tequila in Mexico and trying to fashion some of that plant waste into textiles. So there are these interesting sort of one-off chemistry examples or scientific things going on. Um, But Anya was really looking at sort of a high level at what a couple of big manufacturing companies are doing. And at Furniture Designer and Manufacturer Steelcase, I was interested to hear about this because their Director of Global Sustainability, Angela Nahikian, mentioned sort of in passing the the job opportunity potentially here, the idea of designing for the circular economy being increasingly seen as sort of, as she used the phrase, entrepreneurial gig, but mm-hmm, obviously mm-hmm. flexible, creative. Um, and ultimately, she said they were looking, they were thinking about the circular economy in terms of a market opportunity so big that it could double the size of the company. And Steelcase is a yeah. $3 billion business. Yeah, I, I think what really struck me about that that whole conversation was that the, this movement is being considered as a business model change, not a state sustainability effort. Not you know, it's it's being considered that in that way, which means that the company, just like any other new business, is looking at it incrementally. Like right? they're, they're saying, okay, let's let's try out this pol- uh, this process of recycling, and how can we get this stuff back into a new product. And so they're investing in it, like, just like any other, you know, any company would invest in any new line of business over time, incrementally, and they're, they're helping, you know, use the revenue from their existing business to drive those investments. Um, But yeah, that number was pretty mind boggling. I was like, wow. I mean, but if you think about it, there could be entirely new services. You know, uh, my office, for example, could be expanding or we might be just be bored with our furniture and we could pass it along right to the next company that needs it um, and doesn't want to go out and buy something new, but but could use the, the stuff I've already been, been been finished with. 
it's interesting too because I think it really does cut to some of the big macro level concerns that we talk about in sustainability all the time, which is like how dependent does the economy have to be on natural resources? So like you're mm-hmm. saying, Heather, much more of a fundamental shift in how people are thinking about things like manufacturing right. and reuse. And sort of in terms of how that plays out day to day, Jet John Bradburn, who is GM's global manager of waste reduction, was somebody who spoke about this at Greenbiz 17. Um, and he sort of uh, riffed on the idea that a supply chain is only as strong as its weakest link. So in terms of really having to get down in the nitty gritty and work with suppliers, there's not really a shortcut for that. So I'm curious, for one, to see sort of what interesting projects, pilots, mm-hmm. hopefully commercial products we start to see coming out of this space. Yeah, I and I I find myself wondering how it will affect materials, right? You want something to last long enough to be passed along. At the same time, if it's going to be taken completely out of use, you want it to be able to be recycled. So there's going to be this sort of tension between durability and reusability and recyclability, right? With Mm -hmm. how things are made. So yeah, all about the life cycle. You got it. So we had a really great follow-up this week on a story that we had only begun to tap into several months ago. And Heather, you actually wrote this story on Kashi stepping up its purchases from farms transitioning to organics. Um, For those that may have missed the early rumblings of this, can you just fill us in on what this program is and sort of where they are now? Yeah, so Kashi noticed about 18 months ago that it had a lot of farmers that that it was buying from that wanted to go organic, but they couldn't quite commit the financial resources to doing it. So they created this program in collaboration with an independent third party, Quality Assurance, um, to help farms make the transition. So it's, it's basically, the theory is, okay, this farm is committed over the next three years is going to go organic and we're going to help. We're going to help by buying the product, these transitional products and it crops, if you will, um, during that interim. Um, and he, he made, Basically, I interviewed him during GreenBiz, and he mentioned that one of the reasons he started doing this um, and decided that it would be an opportunity was was all the buying of the farms. And here's what he had to say about vertical integration and why more food companies are buying farms. What we find is happening in the industry when we step back and had a look at this is there is the presence of vertical integration, and some of you might have heard that term before, but... It really relates to the fact that because supply of organic is not keeping pace with demand, we have a situation where some companies are actually buying up their own farmland or even putting in place very long-term contracts for organic supply. And that is really termed vertical integration. And why they're doing that is to make sure they have that continuity of supply Uh, for organic uh, ingredients. Now, what economic theory tells you is uh, companies vertically integrate when there's market failure. It's normally the case if you look at industries, companies move out of their core competencies into other areas because there's market failure. Now, for some companies, it does work for them to to have their own farmland, and, and that's fine. But 
in general, uh, we think an open source approach is much better. So we partnered with QAI, right. Quality Assurance International. They're a third party uh, accredited certifying body. They're also a USDA organic accredited certifying body. And from the outset, we didn't want to make this our protocol. Uh, we wanted it to be what we refer to as an open source protocol. And this opportunity is bigger than uh, Kashi. It's bigger than any one brand and bigger than any one industry. For example, uh, organic cotton is, uh, is, is challenging to source. It's got some of the same challenges as some food-based ingredients. And so if this is something that can apply to food, to fashion, and so QAI had worked with external stakeholders and got a lot of right. feedback on the protocol to ensure that uh, it could work for uh, uh, different industries as well. So what do we know so far about how this program is going? So again, like I said, I had the opportunity to catch up with him. And the cool thing is that um, the, the cereal, the first cereal that they introduced under the program, it's a wheat-based, a wheat biscuit cereal called Karma is actually their fastest growing product in the last five years. So it was an, a, a surprising success, maybe not surprising, but a gratifying success. And they've decided to expand um, the number of acres that they've, they've dedicated to this have, has opened up and um, they started with wheat. They're moving on to, to almonds, dates and sorghum. But here's actually the perspective on why they started where they did. It was 18 months ago that the team identified this opportunity and we launched a product last August and it was called Dark Cocoa Karma and it's a wheat-based product. And we're ex we were excited to start with wheat because wheat is a globally traded you know, commodity. And so what you find is it's more difficult for some wheat farmers to actually transition to organic because they you know, in many cases don't have the financial resources to do that. So we were able to partner uh, with farmers to actually convert farmland from uh, conventional farming to organic. So that was that product, and that's been a very successful launch for us. Uh, we have found it to be our best-selling cereal in the last five years, and we're thrilled to have that out in the marketplace. I also really liked, almost sort of a side note in the story, but that the idea was actually born out of a conversation with a farmer who said that as a consumer, she would be willing to buy products from organizations yeah. that had sort of committed to going organic but hadn't been fully certified. And yeah, so, yeah it's really interesting because I think uh, it's kind of somewhat widely known at this point that there is a lot of red tape, a lot of boxes to check if you want to be officially certified organic. So these things that sort of come in the middle while ultimately working to make sure that standards are met and all of the things yeah. that people spend extra on organics for. Um, it's an interesting model. And there are other companies we should note, like Cliff Bar is also investing. They're looking at sort of long-term financial contracts for farms right. that are looking to transition. Because it can be several years that a farm is in this period. Um, yeah. It has to be several years. Yeah. So there are several, there are a number of companies that are playing with this, right? How, to, how do you help a farmer make that transition? But one of the things that I thought was particularly interesting about Kashi were two things. Number one is they did do it independently, right? So this, these farms that commit to this program are not necessarily obligated to use Kashi as a customer. Of course, having them as a customer is great, right? So they have someone to buy that, that crop. 
However, they're not beholden to it. They're they're part of a, a broader effort. Um, so they could sell to other organizations. The other thing that really struck me was this is not just about food. Um, this could be for any organic crop, even like cotton, right? So again, taking a cotton field out of production is a big investment for a farm. Um, they can't sell that product during the interim and uh, they need that money. They need it even for things like silos, right? You got to keep this product separate. So I think that that's the other thing that makes this particularly a particularly interesting approach. So Lauren, you had a city last week on sustainable cities, an issue we've obviously covered much in, in the last few years. And your headline, why businesses should think small on sustainable cities, that seems kind of counterintuitive. What What's the, the philosophy there? Yeah, I know, right? We're always talking about scale and things that are replicable and adaptable in multiple cities. So that's why I was I was interested to hear from some folks um, like Shannon Schuyler, who's the chief purpose officer at PwC, a little known 223,000 person <laughs> professional <laughs> services firm, um, right. talking about how they've been thinking a lot about their next generation of social responsibility campaigns, a lot of them having to do with sort of these big overarching issues that impact mm -hmm. the environment, they impact the way we live in cities things like income inequality that are sort of notoriously hard to get at if you're looking at a blanket approach that will work for cities with really different context. Right. Um, so I was intrigued to hear her sort of get at this idea, as I alluded to in the headline, that really breaking it down and working at the local scale, in yeah. many cases, more effective. Um, not totally groundbreaking, but I think it's something that um, more people are really taking heed of right now in the sustainable city space in particular, um, beyond what individual companies like PwC are doing. There's groups like the Rockefeller Foundation Offshoot 100 Resilient Cities, who we caught up with recently on this podcast. Um, also the UK-based group Ellen MacArthur Foundation, which has an initiative called the Circular Economy 100 that does some work with cities, which is pretty intriguing and we'll get into. Um, but first, here's Shannon Schuyler from PwC talking about why going big isn't always best when it comes to cities. You can build a school, and you can build a hospital, and you can build a bridge, and those bricks and mortar are really important, but you need the community, you need the individual, you need the family in order to take care of those different assets. It's not just about the physical structure, it's about the social structure. And yet now, look what's happening to many of our communities. They're becoming isolated, they're becoming disjointed, they're becoming places where people don't know what their identity is, and yet we still want to talk about this notion of resilient cities. But how in the world are we going to get to a resilient city if we don't have resilient communities? And so as we've started to think about what is that idea, what can we look at and do differently, we've said, well, you know what, let's not focus on resilient cities, let's focus on the community end instead. And that might sound really easy or that might sound really silly, but frankly, take a look at what's going on in the world. I really think that whether or not you're living in a state-in-the-art high-rise building or whether you're in public housing, if as a community you cannot agree that there's things fundamentally we have to be in together, that we have to be able to make a decision that even though I might not need free transportation, that somebody in my community needs public transportation in order to get to their job. 
We need to say that the issues that are out there can't just be solved because suddenly we want to do large-scale programs to help things globally and nationally. We have to look locally and start in an entirely different way than what we've been doing for the past several years. We live in a divided nation, and that really undersells it, right? Over the last year, what has happened in communities, the riots that are out there, you realize the difference that's there, and frankly, one of the number one reasons, people aren't listening to each other. People are doing a lot of talking, but not a lot of listening. Not a lot of community chats figuring out how individual communities, what's going on, and how can we actually bring people together? There was recently a study that said if people just took a short amount of time to listen to the other point of view, they actually wouldn't demonize it as much. But we don't take that time. Because we want to make sure that what we want to do and what our programs are, we want to make sure to get those out. We also have lost the context in which we do things. And I will put PwC certainly up there on top of the list of what we do. We come out and we want to do a big program. We want to do an education program. We want it to be global. We want it to be national. We want it to hit all of these cities. But at the end of the day, that's not going to work. Because at the community level is what makes that school actually work. And it's not just one part of that community because communities are so incredibly diverse. We have to look at the context in which we're rolling out everything and take it back to really where all these things matter, to how all these cities actually got started. And then when we look at the inequality and we look at the gap continually to increase the suffering that now communities are going through, when you have eight of the wealthiest people, all men, by the way, which is another issue. Yes, applause, I like that, ladies. When you have eight people who are worth more than 3.6 billion of the poorest people, that's a problem. And what's a bigger problem is when you look at why those individuals have been so successful, one of the key reasons is that they've been able to leverage technology. Technology is skill that is continuing to divide communities between the haves and the have-nots of who has access to be able to leverage new jobs and new skills. 7.6 million people are unemployed, but 5.5 million jobs can't be filled because people do not have the skills in order to fill them. I would argue that if we look at these cities and we leverage the unique ambitions and the attributes that each have, that we can actually change the course of each one of the residents. It's not looking to say, we want you to prosper, but we want the communities to prosper, because if the communities prosper, then you can have a resilient city. And this will work for any of the different areas that people want to focus on, whether it's healthcare, whether it's environmental sustainability, whether it's education, whether it's security, whether it's crisis management. How do we start at the community level? Not making commitments that are just broad and overreaching, but saying, we're going to deal with this problem one by one, and I will tell you, this makes it so much harder. Because it's not saying this is a one-size-fits-all. This is recognizing what works in Sacramento will not work in Phoenix, will not work in Chicago, but saying instead, we're going to find those people to work with. We are now going to collaborate with other organizations who know those communities, trusted individuals in those communities that can actually help us solve things, not in one way, but in as many different ways as we have to, to start to bring communities together because it is with communities of strength is how we're going to get to resilient cities, not just getting there because we think cities are important.
So Lauren, one theme again that came up a lot during the event was the, the circular economy and how it applies to circular city. Can you give me more context on that? Yeah, so I alluded to the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. They're probably the main player in this space right now, um, but they've had individual cities like the city of Phoenix uh actually join their group, the Circular Economy 100. So in Phoenix's case, it's obviously a sprawling 500 square mile desert city. It was once christened the least sustainable city, uh, presumably in the world, maybe in the US, uh, by an article on Grist. Um, And it was funny because that actually came up at the event because the current mayor of the city, Mayor Greg Stanton, actually came into office just after that article was written. Uh, So for him, the task was really sort of like reorienting the city away from these patterns of scattershot development uh, to look at things like a city goal to cut waste 40% by 2020. The city's also working on a pretty intriguing 50-acre resource innovation campus specifically mm-hmm. focused on generating value from reused materials. So to yeah. that point of sort of how the science and R&D involved in some of this stuff. Um, but it was especially interesting to hear him talk about sort of the political context of a lot of this. Like you would think, oh, sustainable cities sound pretty benign, but obviously in this a certain context, um, programs can be expensive. There can be all sorts of different reasons why politically these initiatives could get thorny. So here's Phoenix Mayor Greg Stanton talking a little bit more about the politics of sustainable cities. Uh, yes, it does get political <laughs> on occasion. Look, uh, and I don't want to get political in this room because I think this is a organization and the concepts behind it, particularly the oh, MacArthur we're, Foundation, we're, that we're getting political. Cover here. both sides, but the but but look. Um, you know, Phoenix wants to be a very innovative, progressive city when it comes to the circular economy, when it comes to human rights policy, when it comes to treating our uh, diverse populations with the respect that they de- uh, deserve and be open to refugees and all, and all the things you're reading about around the country. And unfortunately, we do it in an environment where um, in our state legislature, for example, they don't share those values. Uh, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that probably a majority of our state legislature are climate deniers and don't believe in this stuff, um, uh, if you will. So our challenge is to make the business case, not to not do the policies as a result of it. We've got to show leadership as a city, but we have to make the economic case in order to ultimately win the day because otherwise it becomes too easy for our friends of the legislature to interfere with what we're doing. In, in many cases, preempt what, we're, what we are uh, doing. You know, some of the cities in Arizona wanted to do a plastic bag uh, ban uh, which we, we can d- agree or disagree with, but we could certainly say that a city should be able to experiment in, to see if it works in their communities. Unfortunately, our legislature banned the ban uh, on, on plastic bags, uh, and the, the list could go on and on about those attempts. And I think that's unfortunately a very bad thing because people move to cities that share their values. And if being a strong leader in the circular economy, if being a strong leader on climate change policy is your value, you want to move to a city that shares those values. And it's unfortunate when a different level of government doesn't share that values and tries to stop us from doing what makes us great. Yeah, speaking of politics, Lauren, I am actually researching a piece right now that that plays right to that. Uh, it's, it's a smart state. Yeah, <laughs> Illinois is, is working. Yeah. So Illinois is working on a smart state initiative. And the the it's the reasons are are the two things we just talked about. Number one is is 
yes, everything has to be local, but there are certain infrastructure investments that could be cheaper if a bunch of cities band together to get it. So like, for example, an innovation center or even a, a, a joint purchasing contract to some of the technologies that, that, that play in this. So they're working on that. And believe it or not, the state that might follow is drumroll Texas. Okay. Mm. So very, you know, you don't think of them as a quote progressive liberal state, but very, um, it, it's in their business interest to do so. So this gets beyond the politics in some ways. Um, the city movement get it is, is fraught with politics, but at the same time, it, it's not necessarily politically, uh, uh, predictable, mm-hmm. if you will. Yeah. A lot of wind power in Texas, right? Some of the data centers yep. you cover. Yeah, yep. definitely. You got it. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. That makes sense. Well, and it was interesting too, in terms of sort of the, the broader case for investment in sustainable cities, resilient cities, whatever sort of terminology you want to use. Um, Shannon Schuyler from PwC did sort of tie it all back to economic opportunity and job opportunity. She mentioned that Technology is obviously a skill that continues to divide communities between the haves and have-nots. And she specifically pointed to this figure that there's 7.6 million people in the U.S. who are unemployed. But at the same time, 5.5 million jobs can't be filled because people don't have the skills. So I think to your point, Heather, there there are places where there's obviously big opportunity that would be... um, beneficial for a lot of different groups and it's sort of finding ways to meet in the middle there Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm, trudge ahead mm -hmm. yeah it's interesting to me in illinois the guy behind it is a former cisco person (laughs) Uh, of course that's yeah yeah you got it Uh It, that also reminds me actually I, i wanted to mention too we ran a piece last year about the first smart nation, and I guess it's mm. pretty fitting that it's a city-state, it's Singapore. Uh, they are spending really aggressively on trying to become a hub for technologies like autonomous vehicles that have a lot of implications yeah. for urban development. So obviously mm-hmm. at a certain point, the smart city, smart state, smart everything, okay. But I think there are a lot of really interesting examples to, to continue to follow. So that about does it. If you've got questions, comments, or suggestions for our upcoming episodes, shoot us an email at 350 at greenbiz.com. Also, just a quick reminder to be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever else you listen to good audio. We'll be back with a new episode next week, but in the meantime, thanks for listening and have a great day.